Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. This edition is in collaboration with the Society for U.S. Intellectual History. Today, my guest is Douglas L. Winiarski, Associate Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Richmond and the winner of the 2018 Bancroft Prize in American History for his book, Darkness Falls in the Land of Light, Experiencing Religious Awakening in 18th Century New England published by the University of North Carolina Press. Winiarski has written a masterful and detailed narrative of the Great Awakening, ushered in by the evangelical and charismatic preacher George Whitfield. Beginning in the established churches of New England, he offers a clear portrait of a highly structured and regulated communal and religious life centered in the congregational churches. From birth to death, parishioners found their place and meaning of life by participating in prescribed religious and social practices. Whitfield and many itinerant preachers following his wake renounced the established churches as false and proclaimed an individual direct experience of the Holy Spirit, unleashing a torrent of dramatic conversions, ecstatic expressions, chaos, and divisions in the churches. New converts, demands for proof of spiritual awakening, and theological battles forever changed New England's social and religious landscape. Winiarski has written a riveting account of the religious convulsions experienced by individuals and communities laying the foundation for American evangelical attitudes towards authority and the nature of our common life. Here is my conversation with Douglas Winiarski. Let me welcome Douglas Winiarski. Uh, Doug, hello, how are you? Hi, Lillian. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. Thank you for coming on the show to talk about your amazing book. It's riveting. It was very hard to put down. And religious history is something I've deal with, but not as extensively as you do in this 18th century period. So before we even get to all kinds of things I want to ask you about the book, tell us about yourself, your background, and how you came to write Darkness Falls in the Land of Light. Well, sure. Um this project began when I many, many years ago, almost two decades ago, uh, when I was a graduate student at Harvard Divinity School. And at the time, I was um, interested in, in religion and the environment. I was interested in figures like Henry David Thoreau and Thomas Cole, the landscape painter. And so I was uh, working on some, some material related to some issues related to religion and the environment in the 18th century. And in in the 18th century, as you know from the book, there's a major earthquake that hits New England in 1727. And I was doing some background research on the kind of the popular religious side of the religious stir that uh, erupted as a result of the earthquake. And I went up to the town of Haverhill, Massachusetts to look at some of the early church records there from the 18th century in the Congregational Church. And the archivist there, I was I was, a, I was young, I was in my 20s at the time, and the archivist, and I was just a master's student. So the the archivist said, I can't let you see the original 18th century church records, but you can check out these 19th century transcriptions with lists of names of people who had joined the church. And then at some point while I was looking at those 
19th century church records, um, he pulled out a bundle of, of manuscripts and handed them, put them on the table and said, oh, and you might be interested in these two. I, I don't really know what they were, what they are. And it turns out they were the, the Haverhill relations, the documents that, um, that, I, that I write about extensively in, the, in part one of the book, um, a unique set of autobiographical writings uh, in which almost half the, the 235 narratives in that collection were written during or shortly after the earthquake of 7027. And they formed what what is arguably the largest collection of autobiographical writings by laymen and women from any uh, religious community in the Western Hemisphere before eight, before 1750. And on that day, um, my life changed. I kind of I laid aside my interest in in uh, in Henry David Thoreau and the Hudson River Landscape School and started working on this project. And Darkness Falls and Land of Light is the result of that. Well, it's rivet. It's a riveting book, but I wanted to ask you. You know, there's a lot been written about the the first Great Awakening, what we call the Great Awakening, among historians. Can you? Uh, why this book? Since there's so much already written about it, what does your book do that's different? That's a great question, and there is a lot of ink that's been spilled on the Great Awakening in New England. Um, but as I uh, was doing some research on those earthquake relations uh, from Haverhill and starting to, to to look through some of the archives in New England, I realized that there were lots and lots of uh, documents that survive from the Whitfielding revivals of the 1740s that are written by laymen and women that had never been studied before by previous historians. And um, I, I, I began to realize that while there's been a lot of writing and a lot of scholarship produced on major uh, ministers and leading intellectual figures of the period, figures like George Whitfield or Jonathan Edwards, really, we really lacked a good description of what those revivals looked like on the ground, so to speak, among laymen and women. And that became the thing that I was searching for, uh, a new way to, to understand the Great Awakening through the experiences of ordinary people. When we before we even the first part of the book, you have your f- five parts of the book. The first part of the book, you're talking about the Congregationalist standing order, uh, the the Congregationalist uh, churches that per- pretty much most people belong to or participated in or were subject to in some way or another. Can you t- describe uh, what it was like to be a member of one of these churches and? How were you recognized as part of the church, and what were some of just the the whole the whole culture seemed to be wrapped around this the church and what the church required? Can you describe that? Sure thing. Uh, yes. Uh, well, in in New England in the in the eighteen the first half of the eighteenth century, of course, we're talking about Puritan New England, the the hotter sort of Protestants that came to New England uh, in the 1600s. And by the time my book begins, in around the the last quarter of the 17th century, um, all the towns in New England had only one church, uh, the Congregational Church, and everyone in a given town, a town like say Haverhill, was required by law to attend that church and pay taxes to support its minister. But not everyone in the town was a full church member. To become a full church member, a person had to go through a ritual process, a a process called the test of a relation, in which they produced a short narrative. Those are those documents I found in the Haverhill Town Library back in the 1990s, um, a short 
autobiography in which they described their religious training, their family background, their religious experiences, their knowledge of the Bible and and traditional Reformed theological doctrines. And then that document would be read to the congregation. And after about a two-week period when the person was kind of vetted by the community, that document would be read and then the person would be voted on and admitted to full communion in the church. And as a full church member, uh, people were, were, were granted a certain set of privileges and responsibilities. And among those privileges were, were the right to baptize their children and the obligation to participate in the Lord's Supper and also the ability to be disciplined by the church. So in all these communities, then, um, we're talking about a single church in which a minority of the, of the people in town are full church members, but everyone in the town is required by law to attend that institution, that religious institution. And it seemed like from birth to death, in every significant way, the church was involved. That's right. And, and I, this is, I think, one place where my book strikes a slightly different chord from what previous scholars have suggested about these early 18th century Congregationalists. I think for most historians, um, they look at the Puritans because of their Calvinist theological heritage as a particularly anxious group of people. Uh, They believe in things like original sin and predestination. And so knowing whether or not one is going to be saved or damned is kind of a, a major question for New England Puritans, particularly in the 17th century. But through a series of adjustments that that um, I think other scholars have written about in great detail, by the time my book begins, those kinds of issues, those questions of assurance of salvation, are less pressing for people um, than ordinary concerns, concerns related to the health of their families or their bodies or the welfare of their communities, the ability to cr- get crops to grow, protection from their French and Indian enemies. Um, these are the kinds of issues that dominate people's devotional lives from cradle to grave, really. And you can see these concerns come out in a particular genre of, of um, literature that I write about that it's, it's relatively unusual and unique to Puritan New England and, and, and the Congregationalists. And these are these small slips of paper called prayer bills. They're, they're little slips of paper that, that families would submit to their ministers, um, usually each week. And then the minister would read them as part of the prayers of each Sabbath service every Sunday. And those prayers are almost never about praying for the salvation or praying of, of, of one of oneself or one's family or praying to know whether one was saved or damned. Instead, they're prayers to make sense of illness, for protection on upcoming travels, um, for prosperity, to relieve droughts, and things like that. Very this worldly. It's not that these people were secular. Um, they're not. They're deeply religious people, but their concerns, their religious concerns are very worldly ones. And didn't some of these like calamities that would befall them, like all humans experience, sometimes would move them to join the church to actually do the formal, all the formalizing of, of their membership? That's right. And and maybe we should back up and um, just acknowledge that 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 category of full church membership is one that not everyone wanted necessarily to seek. Um, most young parents were very eager to have their children baptized. And so many of them wanted to take the step to become a full church member in order to secure the right to baptize their children. But at the same time, people were particularly concerned with the with the, with the obligation to participate in the Lord's Supper. Um, many people thought, because they read their Bibles and they, they knew from 1 Corinthians, that if they participated in the Lord's Supper unworthily, they might, in the words of 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine, 29, eat and drink their own damnation. So 
full church membership was sort of a double-edged sword. There were privileges and obligations. So what tilted the scales in favor of doing one's duty and accepting those obligations and privileges? Often it was something that, that people in the early 18th century in New England would have called the loud calls of God, uh, an event in their life that they interpreted as God warning them or commanding them to do their duty and fulfill their obligations by joining the church. The earthquake of 1727 uh, that we talked about a few minutes ago is, is one of those major events that, in, that impacts many, many people throughout northern New England. But on an individual level, the death of a family member. Uh, there was a set of there was a virulent diphtheria ep epidemic that struck New England during the 1730s that people wrote about in their relations as one of these loud calls of God. Many people had gotten sick, and during their illness, they would say uh, they would pray to God that if they were healed and raised to health again, that they would do their duty and join the church. So many of these church admission testimonies uh, involve healing vows in which people sort of struck a bargain with God to join the church and do their duty. Um, these were all the kind of experiences that people pointed toward uh, that, that led them to join the church rather than hold back uh, from those obligations to participate in the Lord's Supper. Now, is there splits in families like the wife would be the member of the church and the husband would not be the member of the church? Sometimes there were. Um, I think here I follow other scholars who have written about this period that talk about church affiliation as a as a family strategy. Um, that is to say, uh, a decision that was made jointly by spouses. Uh, st statistically, demographically, your typical new church member in the congregational church in the 17, early 1700s would have been um, a person who had reached an age of what we might call social maturation. They, they would be women in their early to mid-20s, men in their mid to late 20s or early 30s. They would have recently gotten married. Many of the men would have just maybe inherited property from their fathers or perhaps purchased or started renting land. Uh, they were just starting out as families. They might have had one or perhaps two children born to the, to the couple. And at that point in the family life cycle, either the husband or the wife, although it was more often the wife, would take that step and join the church as part of a general strategy to make sure that the family was affiliated with the congregational church in some way. Okay, so what is the role of it? You talk a little bit about the role of church discipline in these churches. There was discipline. What what is the nature of a discipline? What would be they be disciplined for? And how would that be carried out? Church discipline was a was the way in which the the congregational churches enforced community moral standards. So the kinds of issues that in the 18th century that people would have been involved in in a in a church discipline case um, would have been things like intemperance, uh, drinking intemperately. Um, many young couples, as a term of joining the church, would have been um, uh, asked to confess their sins of fornication because uh, what's often called bridal pregnancy was pretty common in the 18th century. That would be. Um, engaged men and women that would engage in in sexual intercourse and conceive children before wedlock and then their children would be bear, would be their first child would be born somewhere say between 5 and 8 months um uh, after they were married and so at that point then uh, they would be asked to kind of confess their sins and of of uh, uncleanness before marriage as it was called in the 18th century um those are the two major ones that you find uh the church sort of policing regularly during the 18th century I'm just kind of wondering, did they police things like uh, bad financial dealings? 
ill-gotten gain or that kind of thing, business, uh, you know, problems? That's a, those are issues. So the, the, those are issues that were definitely part of the early Puritan tradition. So you'll find those kinds of church discipline cases cropping up in congregational church record books in the 1640s, 50s, and 60s. Um, by the early 1700s, the church had, had kind of stepped back from that kind of policing of business practices. But part of the story that I trace in this book is those kinds of that larger role of the church in the ethical activities of its members comes roaring back among more radical new light congregations and separate Baptist churches after the Whitfielding revivals of the 1740s. How were, were there religious dissenters? What would, who were they and how many were they and how were they regarded or treated uh, in a community where the Congregationalist church is, you know, the major institution? Right. Uh, so one of the, one of the surprising things I found in this study, and it plays out in the in the in part one of the book that we've been talking about, is that um, Congregational New England, in the provincial period from about the 1680s on, is really a kind of religious monoculture. You really don't find a lot of dissent, um, a lot of different kinds of Protestant denominations in. The places that I study most often, uh, part, Connecticut and the Massachusetts Bay Colony, uh, before 1740. While there were dissenters that, uh, that came in the 17th century, most notably Quakers, most of those dissenters were banished or silenced or relegated to places like Rhode Island by the time my book begins. So one of the things that I was trying to do in the book was try to find out a statistical way to represent that that phenomenon, the fact that that the congregational church was really an overwhelmingly dominant religious institution in most towns. Um, and one interesting example that I was able to, to put together, it, there's, a, there's a map that survives from the 1729 in the town of West Newbury, Massachusetts. And um, what's interesting about the map is that it plots all of the individual households that were existing in that town in that year. And I was able to cross-reference the labeled households on that map with the town church records and discovered that something like 85% of those families were all affiliated with the congregational church in West Newbury in the year that map was made. Uh, it suggests, and, and, and I've tried that, that, that tactic with other communities using tax lists, and I, and I found almost universally in eastern Massachusetts and in Connecticut that somewhere between 65 to sometimes 95% of all families in, in New England uh, outside of Rhode Island and outside of a few large seaports like Boston, where there might be small pockets of, um, of Anglican dissenters. But generally speaking, 65 to 95% of all New England towns were comprised primarily of congregational households. Okay. Now, this, this world that you describe in your first part of the book seems like a very tight-knit, tight in terms of uh, sealed within itself kind of environment. So there had to be some seeds of discontent there, it seems to me, that when Whitfield comes into town, comes into the area, he unlocks something. What is he unlocking? It, you know, what is what is the discomfort that people are feeling that he sort of puts his finger or does he create something that really wasn't there before? Yeah, that's a great question. 
And my sense is that he's manufacturing something. Um, you know, those of us who work on American religious history have lived with the category of a revival of religion for so long that we've we've stopped to we've stopped we sort of lost sight of the fact that the category of a revival has a history to it. Um, in New England, there are moments where large groups of people joined churches before 1740. Uh, the earthquake of 1727 is a great example. But New Englanders had words to describe those kinds of events. They called them stirs or harvests. The idea that something was dead and needed to be revived is a, is a discourse that New Englanders needed to learn how to speak. Um, because after all, 65 to 85% of all those families in town are, are generation after generation coming of age, joining the church, having their children baptized. And so when Whitfield comes in 1740, he needs to persuade people that something's wrong with their religious traditions. And that's in fact what he does. His his sermons... Um, Let's wait just a minute. Uh, Doug, before we go into that, I, uh, I want to hear who was George Whitfield and why in the world did he come over to America? What was his purpose? What was his thinking? Who was he? What was his personality like? Before we start talking about what happened when he got here, sure. George Whitfield was is one of the great, um, one of the best known sort of celebrities of the 18th century, for lack of a better term. Uh, many scholars like to liken him to a to a rock star. He was an English. Anglican field preacher who had spent a lot of time in his early in his youth in England, uh, learning studying the theater, and he had hoped to be a, a sort of an actor at one point. He had a strong religious conversion experience. He was an early contemporary of the Wesley brothers, the founders of Methodism. He studied at Oxford University, um, and he was ordained uh, in the Anglican Church. And he came to the British colonies and in 1739 and 1740 and toured his way up the colonies from South Carolina to New England. And he was an electrifying preacher. He was an outdoor preacher. He had a sonorous voice. He preached in an effective style. He used um, direct address to his audiences. Uh, he spoke without notes for the most part. He talked about really uh, compelling stories from the Bible. Um, in, in a sort of a direct and emotive way. People would describe him crying in the pulpit. And so in some ways, people in colonial North America had really never seen this kind of oratorical performance before. Um, so when he shows up in New England, there was great anticipation when he arrives in, in the fall of 1740 in New England. And then he, he spends several weeks uh, preaching his way first from Rhode Island to Boston, then from Boston, he does a side trip up to Maine, and then he strikes out cross-country. He travels across the country to Northampton and meets with Jonathan Edwards, then down the Connecticut Valley and back to New York City. And along the way, he preaches almost every day. And wherever he goes, he draws huge crowds of people in the thousands. Uh, the, his, reports of his sermons on Boston Common suggest he preached to something like 20,000 people at a time when the, the entire population of Boston was was less than that. So he was an electrifying sermon performer. Now, did he, was he preaching mostly in churches and were pastors inviting him in to preach? Or was he doing it outside the churches, you know, in common uh, open fields and things like this? So uh, when he comes in 1740 for the first time, and it's the first of multiple tours that he'll make of New England from 1740 until he, his death in 1770, he actually dies in New England in uh, in the town of what's now Newburyport. And was and he's buried in the crypt of the Old South Presbyterian Church in Newburyport. Um, when he first comes in 1740, 
He's in, he's he's welcomed into Boston by all the leading minister, all the leading congregational ministers. He's invited to preach in all of their meeting houses. While he's in Boston, though, uh, one of the things that happens is that there's an accident that takes place. Um, one of the churches that he preaches in, the galleries crack and it creates a, a the, the the galleries sort of collapse and it creates and people sort of have to flee out the windows and run out of the church and that kind of stuff. So from then on, because too many people were attending his meetings, he began preaching in the open air. And that's when he started preaching on Boston Common. And he often preached outdoors. Uh, in fact, um, in the Smithsonian Institution, um, right now there's a great exhibit where they actually can, they've got a, a his folding uh, pulpit. It's this large, about six foot tall standing pulpit. It looks like a, almost like a, a, a ladder um, that he stood from when he preached out, outdoors so he could elevate himself above, above the people. Now, what was it? Did he have the same effect in uh, England before he came to America, or or not? He did. Um, although he was just getting his reputation in England as being a compelling field preacher, um, after his first American tour, he did go back to Great Britain and he preached with equal power um, in in Scotland, in England, and in Wales, and uh, was from then on a beloved. Uh, 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 evangelical preacher for the rest of his career. Now, you said he had a direct address to the audience. What was his message to the audience? So this is something I think that some scholars have kind of overlooked. Most scholars emphasize his his oratorical skill, but one of the things that I noticed in Whitfield's preaching is that he has a direct target for his preaching. And more of the, he, he what he's really interested in is is encouraging his audiences to in, to look introspectively and determine for themselves if they had experienced something that Whitfield called the new birth. Today, we would call it a conversion experience or among contemporary evangelicals, uh, taking Jesus, being born again or taking Jesus as your personal savior. Had the person experienced an event, an event that they could say that they could, that they could date precisely and say that this happened to me once I was blind, now I can see kind of thing. Uh, Whitfield looked at many of the ways that congregations had been religious and had, had understood their religious lives over the, the previous half century and found them lacking or wanting. Uh, so his sermons would often say, um, if you, you know, if, if you're if you're relying on your baptism or your head knowledge of spiritual things, your your theological knowledge, or even if you've had a kind of a an experience where you've been where where you've gotten sick and been raised to health again. These are all what Whitfield would have called the sandy foundations of faith. They were um, ways of sort of looking at your religious life that uh, that you couldn't rely upon. And the only thing that mattered is whether or not one had had the Holy Spirit, God's Holy Spirit, descend into their bodies to regenerate and convert them. That's that's what he wanted people to look for. Um, and that's the message that he preached. And so it's a message that New Englanders heard, and they received that message with some consternation because so many of those people who had joined the congregational church were used to pr producing these narratives where they didn't quite tell that story about themselves. Those church admission testimonies aren't evangelical conversion narratives, but Whitfield was encouraging them to look for precisely that in their religious experiences. Because the, the congregationalists were teaching people that you became a Christian sort of, there wasn't, you couldn't really specify the moment. You just kind of grew in, or it was a journey, a lifetime journey that if you were devout and you went to church and you read the scriptures and you prayed and you went to Lord's Supper over a period of, of a lifetime, 
uh, you could have a reasonable confidence, <laughs> if not assurance, uh, of of your destiny. A reasonable confidence, but but never assurance, and I think that's it. You're right. Um, New Englanders in the early part of the 18th century uh, would have referred to that as as your walk with God. It's a good metaphor. Um, it's about your outward comportment or the way you carried yourself in the world. A, a synonym that that was commonly used for that that metaphor of the godly walk was your holy conversation, the way you, really the way you carried yourself or comported yourself in the world. Were you fair-minded in your business dealings? Did you work hard to educate your children religiously, teach them to read the Bible? Did you do your duty and join the church? Uh, did you pray in secret? Uh, did you engage in family devotions with your children? All those kinds of things. Uh, that sort of stolid piety year after year uh, over the course of one's life, while as good Calvinists, these New Englanders would never think that that would merit salvation for them. I think people kind of figured that that was about the best they could do in this world, and then everything else would have to sort itself in the hereafter. Like it would shape their souls, and yeah, instead of instantaneous, which Whitfield was teaching. Um, so let me ask you about now. He he quickly uh, created a whole group of itinerant preachers who were his imitators, who went out and said this is the way to go. And they started preaching all over the countryside also. Please talk about those because it was, it sounded like there was a whole lot of them. And all, where did they come from? Where did they come from England? Were they American, were homegrown? Who are these preachers? These other preachers are following in the Whitfield sort of tradition. That's right. Whitfield's itinerant ministry, the idea of um, a ministerial career in which one has no settled pastorate and simply travels about the countryside preaching uh, was a completely new thing for New England Congregationalists. Uh, they're used to having settled ministers. Remember, there's only one church in each town, and in each parish church, there's just one minister. Those ministers would occasionally swap pulpits with their neighbors um, and preach on supply, you know, every here and then, here and again, when when someone was sick or or was traveling or something like that. But the idea that one would one would be an uh, an itinerant preacher, spend their entire career doing that kind of stuff, is something that Whitfield taught people in colonial America to do. And the first person to follow in his footsteps was a New Jersey Presbyterian, a guy named Gilbert Tennant, who followed George Whitfield up to Boston in the in the uh, winter of 1741 and spent a good four months in Boston, uh, preaching every day and often multiple times a day in Boston um, and hammering away at that same Sandy Foundations kind of argument. And then Whitfield also inspired a whole group of uh, congregational ministers to emulate him. So Jonathan Edwards spent a fair amount of time on the road in 1741, most famously when he went to the town of Enfield, Massachusetts, to preach his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Uh, Edwards' protege, uh, Joseph Bellamy, did the same thing. So did Eliezer Wheelock, who became the founder of Dartmouth College, and most notably, a really radical preacher from Long Island, um, a congregational preacher named James Davenport. All of them were were operating in the Whitfieldian mode as itinerant preachers. And then by 1742, uh, a Harvard tutor named Daniel Rogers, who had followed George Whitfield on his 1740 preaching tour, became the, became the first New England minister to be ordained as an itinerant preacher with no settled parish. And it was a, a, radically, a radical new departure in congregational history. Okay, so... Do these people, these uh, a lot of these itinerant preachers were not as educated as the 
standing uh, pastors of the churches, the local churches, because you had to have an education to be a minister. It was considered a, a profession of high value. And that's that's not quite true. Is that not quite um, true? Okay. So so the the earliest let's call them Whitfieldarians, ministers that followed in Whitfield's uh, footsteps as itinerant preachers, were all of them Harvard or Yale-trained clergymen that had been ordained as oversettled pastorates, but suddenly took to the roads. So for example, um, Jonathan Edwards obviously was the the minister of Northampton, Massachusetts, or uh, another controversial figure was this guy, Joseph Parsons from the town of Old Lyme, Connecticut, he spent a fair amount of time preaching outside of Old Lyme, so much so that his parishioners began to get a little anxious that he was spending more time on the road than he was at home preaching where he ought to have been. Um, and the same is true with Daniel Rogers, that first ordained itinerant preacher. He had been a tutor at Harvard College. So they were typical congregational ministers, but they had been so fired up by Whitfield's unusual preaching techniques and style that they began to emulate, uh, began to emulate him. Okay, what kind of experiences the uh, lay people were they having at these uh, preaching gatherings? Uh, what what was what was what was happening that was so powerful? Well, one thing is that they were taking that message of the sandy foundations of faith to heart, and it's a very disturbing experience, right? And and one of the best examples where you can see this at work is in a autobiographical manuscript that was written in the 1760s by a Connecticut layman named Nathan Cole. Cole uh, sat in the audience in 1740 when Whitfield passed through the Connecticut Valley and stopped to preach in Middletown, Connecticut. And Cole wrote um, about uh, traveling to Middletown with a throng of horses and riders and people crossing the Connecticut River in just in the, the river being sort of black with boats and ferries as more than 4,000 people descended on Middletown, at the time a relatively small Connecticut farm town, um, to hear George Whitfield preach. Cole described uh, Whitfield as throwing down all his foundations and convincing him that the way he had been religious through for the for much of his adult life, and he had been a, a full church member in the local Connecticut Congregational Church in the town where he lived for more than a decade before 1740, as being all for naught because he had never experienced the new birth. So he experienced Whitfield's preaching as a wrenching experience that sort of pulled him out of his complacent ways of, of sort of going through the motions of religion as he learned to talk to talk about it and propelling him into a very uncertain future. Um, that's how that's how he experienced it, and um, and he's considered pretty typical for many full church members of these congregational churches that watched Whitfield preach and received and took seriously his message about the sandy foundations of faith. So this was uh, it changed the marks of what was considered a true Christian from a lot of outward social behavior and uh, discipline and duty to uh, something much more interior, and that interior. Uh, thing was what Whitfield and then many of Whitfield's emulators um, began to preach and talk about as the indwelling presence of God's Holy Spirit. And of course, we all know that experience is self-authenticating. <laughs> it's very difficult to to prove what your experience has been inside. So this sort of unleashes a debate about 
who is a Christian, how you become a Christian, how do you know someone's a Christian? And some pretty nasty things come out of that. Uh, some nasty and surprising things, I would say. Um, how do you tell whether you have this invisible power regenerating you inside your body? How can you discern the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in your body? Um, it's a hard question for New Englanders. In fact, New England theologians and congregational ministers didn't talk a lot about the third person of the Trinity very much in their theological writings. Um, it just wasn't just wasn't a major part of the Reformed theological tradition to which these New England congregationalists were inheritors. But when Whitfield comes, he begins to say, you need to have this discrete experience. You have to know that you've had it. And that experience involves the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. He sent New Englanders back to inside themselves to figure out has that happened to me? And one of the ways, and one of the, and and so when when people watched the revivals and what happened in the revivals, they they paid close attention to the kind of visible cues that they could, that they could see. And one way that people began to understand the presence of the Holy Spirit, uh, and it's interestingly enough has interesting parallels with the way modern Pentecostal evangelicals would understand it. It's it's by the way in which it impacted people's bodies. Um, so at these revival meetings, not so much when George Whitfield was in New England, but in the years that followed, the next three or four years that followed, these local revival preachers that had taken to the road in emulation of Whitfield began to preach these rousing revival sermons. They gather lots of people together, and they would preach on the terrors of hell and the dangers of the sandy foundations of faith, and they would then watch people's bodies begin to swoon. People would fall to the ground. They'd cry out in fear. They would tremble. They'd shout out. They'd cry out sometimes in laughter if they'd claimed that to have experienced the new birth. And those kinds of bodily signs, those exercised bodies, became, for many New England ministers, visible evidence that the Holy Spirit had descended among their audiences. And they were eagerly uh, anticipating preaching sermons that would elicit that kind of response from their, from their audiences. This is, there was a very, this was a very interesting description in your book, because I'm thinking, okay, what's going on here? Is it, is, are people uh, performing this as a way to show that they have the Holy Spirit? Is it a performance? It is a, it's a sociological phenomenon you know, when you have a, a, a you know a group of people who are really immersed in something, you know, I'm trying to understand. Uh, I'm, I know you're trying to explain it historically, and I'm trying to understand it psychologically. Like, what is happening to these people? What is the op actual process by which they enter into these sort of physical fits? Basically, um, did you, I mean? Did you find? Did you have an answer for yourself? What was ha what would the what would the phenomena was because it was quite strong. So, um, as a historian of religious experience, I, I try to set aside um, my own judgments about what I think is really happening. Because at the end of the day, what I, what I actually have access to as a scholar are written texts describing those things that are happening. So, uh, cognitive psychologists today who work on religious experience can, can kind of wire people up and, and try to see what happens with their brains right, when, right, when right. they're engaged in devotional activity. Though, but I don't have access to that kind of scientific, um, social scientific data. Um, what I can see are the ways that people at the time were talking about these kinds of experiences. And what many of these Whitfield area ministers were saying is that these were visible signs 
of the descent of the Holy Spirit. Now, there were other people that were deeply concerned about the ways, the disruptive features of these kinds of revival meetings. And so they had other ways of trying to explain what was happening. Um, oftentimes, they would rely on, on theories about nerves or animal spirits. They would say that it was a physical sort of a contagion that was sort of spread from person to person. Uh, we might call that a kind of groupthink argument. Uh, but you know, in, in, at the end of the day, I think the people themselves that were caught up in the revivals and participating in them really did believe that this is, in fact, what the Holy Spirit was like. It was something that actually was disruptive. Um, many, many people turned to the the stories about Jesus's ministry, where he comes not to bring peace but a sword, as evidence that disruption or chaos or confusion were good signs. Um, uh, uh, of of uh, authentic religious experience, uh, because once again, God was having to wake up his slumbering New Englanders from their from their sort of godly walking slumbers through these revival events, and disruption was part of the process. But this, the thing about you talk about is the fact that these uh, experiences really led to an unmooring of people from their families and their communities because of these. So strong experiences, they became alienated from their from their families and from their churches. That could happen, and um, and it did in a number of of cases. Um, so, one of the things that happens is that um, once you place this experience at the center, let's call it the evangelical conversion experience, at least as it played out in New England during the Whitfieldian revivals of the 1740s, and if it's something that could be known. It's something that you could experience and say, like, I've had this experience. Like the the separate Baptist preacher who would go on to a long career, Isaac Backus, would, would say it like this. He, he would say, like, it happened to me as I was mowing in the field on a certain day at a certain time. That's a degree of certitude that perennially eluded you know, New England Puritans in their sort of dogged uh, devotional practices of the 17th and early 18th century. So once you've had that experience and you could claim to have had it yourself— the next step might be that you could also claim to be able to see it in other people through a, a, a what's often called the gift of spiritual discernment, that you could see that you were converted perhaps, but perhaps your spouse was not, or perhaps your minister was not, or most of the full church members in that congregation you've been worshiping in for a decade or so before 1740 were not. And then you might think to yourself, I don't belong with these people. I belong with like-minded people who could also claim to have had this experience. And pretty soon you get small groups of people breaking away from the congregational church into what's called separate or strict congregational churches, small little conventicles, usually a few families and a few people getting together that would blossom into a into a sort of a, a, an alternate congregational establishment in many towns. And then many of those churches wouldn't see themselves as being pure enough and they might hive into separate Baptist churches. And so where in the beginning in 1700, there might be one and only one congregational church in these New England towns, by 1750 or so, a decade after the Whitf after George Whitfield's first New England tour, you might find that congregational church and a strict congregational church and a separate Baptist church all in the same town. And suddenly a religious marketplace is emerging because people's religious experiences no longer square with one another's. Now, how much of this revival... Um was really a, a, a youth revival. So um, that's an interesting question. 
the we talked a little earlier about the typical demographic for full church members in the congregational church before 1740, and they tended to be young adults, people who have just come of age, just gotten married, just starting out in life in, in their families, in their new families. Um, the Whitfieldian experience of the new birth is something that is open and available to all people. Uh, that includes young children and their examples of of children down to the ages of eight and nine experiencing that new birth and testifying to it and joining congregational churches, uh, young and unmarried women and men, enslaved Africans, indentured Native American indentured servants. So all of a sudden, the demographics of church membership, when you look at those church record books during the 1740s, tilts decisively toward the kinds of people who typically would not be uh, a typical church member, younger unmarried, socially marginalized members of the community. But one of the things that I also discovered in my research is that I think that those groups that, that scholars have talked about before, young unmarried people being the, the one of the primary demographics of the revival, um, is actually just the tip of the iceberg. If you remember back to that story about Nathan Cole we were talking about, uh, Nathan Cole, as he as he remarks in his autobiographical narrative about his religious experiences, mentions that he had been a member of the Congregational Church for more than a decade before George Whitfield came to town. And there's good evidence that suggests that perhaps two-thirds of all revival participants would have been people just like Nathan Cole, existing full church members who had accepted that critique that of the Sandy Foundations of Faith found themselves wanting were caught up in the revivals, and now we're looking for a, a new a new way of experiencing religion. But those people are really hard to see because since they're already church members, they're not going to join the church again. So their names won't appear in the church record books. So what we see from the demographic data are all the young people. But we have, what we have to remember is that they're probably only one third of the major target audience of the revivals. Two thirds of those people are existing godly walkers, people like Nathan Cole, who are now for the first time thinking, I have to have a conversion experience. I have to be able to testify to the new birth. So now what you've got is you've got these divisions going on, people seeking out these experiences, which actually diminishes the the significance or importance in their mind about all these, uh, you know, things that they were doing before, all their the piety and all that. So who is standing against the revivals? Let's talk about that. And I want to know about Jonathan Edwards. I know that in the beginning he was uh, a supporter, but he became much more sober-minded about it. What was that move? Okay, so let's take them in turn. Um, so, uh, as the revivals take what what I can what I would consider to be a radical turn, as the people that the ministers that the itinerant preachers that follow in George Whitfield's wake ramp up their rhetoric in, and, and begin to preach more and more on the terrors of hell and the dangers of the sandy foundations of faith, as they begin to work harder to animate their audiences and get their audiences to cry out and experience religion in emotional and physical ways. Um, there's also a large outbreak of visionary experiences. Um, as the revivals take this radical turn, and I think they're, they really crystallize in the figure of James Davenport, who is a uh, one of Whitfield's disciples, a guy from Long Island who tours New England several times in 1741 and 1742. And unlike Whitfield, he preaches without the support of local ministers. He preaches wherever he can, 
with or without the consent of local ministers. In fact, he encourages people to travel long distances to hear a converted preacher rather than to stay at home and listen to their home minister if they think that minister is unconverted. The authorities in New England thought that James Davenport was either insane or a dangerous social force for chaos and disruption and rioting. And so he was jailed twice, once in Hartford, once in Boston, banished from both colonies. And it's James Davenport that really tips the scales in 1741 and 42 against the revivals, uh, where now ministers that would have welcomed George Whitfield in 1740 are now beginning to look at the revivals with a much more critical eye. And the most famous of these figures is Charles Chauncey of Boston the minister of Boston's first congregational church, who spends much of the 1740s publishing uh, exposés of all of the what he called excesses of the revivals, all the ways in which they it's a form of sort of rabble rousing and it's sort of what he would call in, enthusiasm or a delusive kind of religion in which people think they're experiencing the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit when they've just deluded themselves to think that that's so. And so uh, by about 1744, about the time that George Whitfield comes back for his second preaching tour, the New England ministry, the congregational ministry, is about evenly divided between those who support the revival and those who are beginning to question its authenticity. And Jonathan Edwards, as a as a figure, sort of straddles both worlds. Um, most history textbooks, American history textbooks, claim that he's one of the great architects of the of the Great Awakening, at least in New England. But I see him differently. Um, when Whitfield comes in 1740, he invites him to come out to Northampton, and he's pretty enamored with George Whitfield when he first arrives. And it's pretty clear, too, that, that Edwards, like many of his colleagues, began to ramp up his sermons and preaching um, over the next few months. But and, and it all culminates, I think, for Edwards. He, he takes to the road, does some itinerant preaching, and, and it, it culminates in in. July of 1741, when he preaches this famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which is often considered one of his homiletic masterpieces, one of the great works of early American literature. Um, that sermon is famous for all its imagery, uh, the most famous of those images being the, the, the spider dangling, the sinner equated to a spider dangling over the pits of hell, suspended only by God's hand and the slender thread. Um, it's important to remember who Edwards was preaching to in that sermon, who, who the spider was. Uh, in Edwards' reading of it, once again, the spider isn't those worst drunkards and thieves and worst sinners in, in the town of Enfield. The people he's targeting in that sermon are people that would have been called professors. And in, the, and in their day, a professor was a person would, who would have professed religion. That, that is to say, he's speaking to full church members in that sermon. So once again, it's the same trope that we've seen before, where these itinerant revival preachers are preaching against the Sandy Foundations of Faith and against church members who couldn't claim to have, who had yet to claim that they experienced conversion. Almost right after that, though, within a month or so, James Davenport arrives in New London, in in New Haven, uh, Connecticut, at Yale College, and Jonathan Edwards also arrives there to preach the Yale commencement address. And the two men are there at the same time, and it's a turning point for Edwards because he sees just how radical James Davenport is. And for Edwards, it's kind of James Davenport represents a bridge too far, a way of itinerating that's just beyond the pale. And as a result, he turns against many of the, the things that he had been actively promoting, uh, bodily exercises and unusual religious forms uh, that he'd been trying to cultivate among his own parishioners in Northampton, and spends the rest of the revival writing a series of treatises that 
are similar to Charles Chauncey's. In both cases, trying to tamp down what both men considered the excesses of the of the Great Awakening in New England. Now you've also got it creates an incredible amount of uh, theological realignment, theological controversy, theological debates about all kinds of things. And you've got the antinomian controversies. You've got uh, perfectionism coming to bear. You've got uh, you know who's a Christian, who's not. What does it mean to be, you know, to participate in the church and, and who can participate? Let's talk about some of the, the theological questions that all this revival stirs up. So um, on a, one of the things I think is most fun to think about on this score with my book is how does it play out for ordinary people? Um, because it, it, the Great Awakening revivals uh, produce a lot of creative and interesting and sometimes not so well thought out theological ideas among ordinary people. And um, I think that's what you were gesturing towards with your question. But for ordinary people, once you've had this experience, um, uh, and once you start looking for the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in your, in, in, in your own life, um, a lot of things come onto the table that, that Puritan theologians would have shied away from. Um, because you're really suggesting that Revelation is an ongoing process. Uh, most Reformed theologians up until the 1740s in New England would have said that Revelation ceased in apostolic times and that we shouldn't expect God to be co- communicating directly with people in 1741 or 42. But for people that were experiencing the revivals, it's a really heady kind of affair in which they, they think that kind of all things are possible and that God might continue to communicate with his faithful in strikingly new ways. And one of the most interesting ways that it, it plays out at the peak during the peak months of the revival is in this rash of visionary experiences that are widely reported in different parishes from Connecticut to Maine. Um, ministers and lay people reported the same kind of affair event where some of their prisoners during a particularly powerful revival sermon would swoon and fall to the ground and lay insensible for a period of time, sometimes a few minutes, sometimes more than an hour. And when they awoke from their stupor, they would tell the the assembled onlookers that their soul had been carried out of their body and was carried up to the gates of heaven where they had an audience with God and Jesus and the heavenly host enthroned, and that Jesus would often present them with a book, the book of life. And in that book, he would show them that their names were written. And sometimes they would show he would show them the names of their family members, or sometimes their minister, or sometimes someone like George Whitfield was in that book as well. And so when those people awoke from their experiences and shared those experiences with other people, they were basically saying, I've seen it. I've had it handed down to me from on high that my name is written in the book of life. I have absolute infallible assurance of my own salvation. And that's not very Calvinist and not very Puritan. And it's a it's a form of kind of late theological creativity that we see going on during the peak months of the Great Awakening in New England. And some of these people actually had believed that they had reached perfection, which led to all kinds of um, freedom, a loosening of a lot of uh, moral, uh, you know, I guess what you call it, fences. People had moral ideas about what could be done, but now if they were perfect, they kind of separated their interior life from their actual uh, exterior life. So the the real the real question for those really radical people that claimed with absolute confidence that they were saved is 
If your soul is saved, what do you do when you continue to live in a body that continues to desire and want and, and be fallible and that kind of stuff? And so working out for many of these people called new lights, as they were known in the 18th century, working out the relationship between soul and body becomes a really interesting theological project. And one of the ways it, it plays out among certain kinds of, uh, of these strict or separate congregational churches or separate Baptist churches works like this. Um, People claim to have had a conversion experience, and then they claim that they that they can that that they're that they know that they're saved, and they can know that with certainty. Then they look at their spouse and say, "But I was married to this person before I'd had that experience, and maybe that person hadn't yet had that experience." And then they kind of looked across the the aisle at someone else in the congregation and said, "But that person over there has had that experience. Perhaps God is telling me that I shouldn't be married to my current wife or husband, but that I should be united with that." other member of the congregation. It's a it's a phenomenon that in the time was called internal marriage and would become to be known as spiritual whiffery. And so there's a whole series of adultery scandals that take place among these um among these separate or strict congregational churches during the 1750s uh, as uh, husbands abandon their wives and wives abandon their husbands and begin living with people with whom they're not married. Okay. So now after this revival, I guess there's a, at some point the revival sort of kind of settled down a little bit, but what's left behind is an entire a reformulated religious scene. And uh, tell us what is the, what were the implications of that for, for us? Well, we've been talking about, um, New England congregationalism at the turn of the 18th century as a kind of religious monoculture, where basically, again, 65 to 85% of the people in any given town are members of that congregational church. If we think of the Whitfieldian revivals of the 1740s as a kind of prism, and we think of that congregational culture as a beam of light passing through the prism, on the other side, from, say, 1745 until the time of the American Revolution and beyond, what we see is that congregational tr uh, uh, tradition being refracted through the prism into a wide spectrum of religious beliefs, practices, and denominations. So you'll find those congregationalists still as one of the beams in that emerging spectrum. But you'll also find strict congregationalists, separate Baptists, um, people that that move even further, those perfectionist groups of people that practice things like spiritual whiffery will be eventually merging into groups like Universalists, um, Free Will Baptists, and the Shakers in particular come right out of this movement. Um, and then you'll find in the other direction, you'll find people that are sort of hunkering down from all the chaos of the revivals and seeking something much more liturgically stable. And so one of the great growth industries in New England in the uh, third quarter of the 18th century between, say, 1750 and 1775 is the Church of England, which grows dramatically in Connecticut and Massachusetts as people leave the congregational churches with all of their rancor and all of their uh, divisions emerging within them and seek something that's much more stable, the Anglican Church. And then also you'll find groups of people that that Yale President Ezra Stiles once called nothing Arians. People that just simply walked away from the congregational churches, never came back, and never affiliated with any other of these religious bodies, sort of independent seekers, agnostics, people with sort of no religious background, seeking no religious community at all in their religious lives as they move forward. And you'll find all of those people in various uh, in various uh, concentrations all throughout New England from 1750 all the way through the American Revolution. So let me ask you a question. You don't really deal with this much in your book, but how did this uh, religious earthquake prepare New England for the coming revolution? 
That is a question I definitely chose to sidestep in the book, um, partly because other scholars have written about it in interesting ways and controversial ways, and partly because I wanted to keep my story focused on the experiences of ordinary people. And it sometimes is hard to tell what impact the awakening had um, on the, on that generation of, of men and women who lived through the American Revolution. Um, one thing I think we can say for certain is is that um, that that kaleidoscopic array of of religious groups and denominations that emerge in the wake of the Great Awakening is part of a broader what's often called the market revolution uh, in early America or the consumer revolution, a, a growing emphasis on choice and the ability to consume and purchase. And choose for oneself. Uh, really, um, you see this in the in the economic sphere. You see more and more people purchasing things like tea sets and silverware, right? Um, but in the religious sense, you see people beginning to choose their religion. It's it's what uh, one historian calls the corrosive logic of choice in the late part of the later parts of the 18th century. And it's that I guess that if, if there's any connection between the awakening and the revolution, it's that that the awakening. Uh, allows people to begin to think about issues of choice in the religious sphere in ways that they'll think about in the political sphere a generation later. But it also it's also true that, and this doesn't work so well for the argument, that the that the most radical people coming out of the Great Awakening are also those perfectionists we were talking about a minute ago are also the most likely to wind up seeking and eventually finding their way into one of these radical perfectionist groups like the Shakers. That are pacifist in nature. So, if you follow the logic of the Whitfielding revivals to the furthest shore, to something like Shakerism, you probably wouldn't find yourself involved in the revolution at all because you'd be a pacifist. So, it's it's it it's an interesting argument, but one that's that's to date still kind of inc- inconclusive about about how it works, right? Yeah. No, I mean, I, I that's fair. I just wanted to ask you that because that's what I kept thinking. Um, anyway, Douglas uh, Winarski, thank you for your generous time and um, have. I just wanted to ask, thank you for being here. It's, it's a great book. I love it. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. This has been a special edition in collaboration with the Society for U.S. Intellectual History. This is your host, Lillian Barger. <laughs>